Habakkuk chapter 2, please. And let's look, Lord, in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege we have as believers to come to your word, to open it up, to study its pages, and know that, Father, what we have in our possession is the very inspired, inerrant word of God. We thank you that you are a God who loved us so much that you gave to us by divine revelation your word to instruct us, to aid us in understanding your greatness and goodness. And we pray today as we open up the page of your word that we would indeed have our eyes and our hearts open up and our ears that you'd illumine us through your spirit to the understanding of its truth. Lord, give me wisdom, I pray, from on high, that I might today know exactly what to say and I might say it to your glory. And may you this day receive all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 2 opens with Habakkuk on the watchtower. It says in verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. And where he is waiting for the Lord to answer his questions of chapter 1. And while in the sanctuary of the watchtower, the Lord graciously does answer Habakkuk and give him the vision that he needed to turn his worrying into worshipping. When God spoke to his servant, he gave him three responsibilities here in chapter 2. We saw the last time, the first two, he was to write the vision in verses 2 and 3, and he was to trust God's word in verses 4 and 5. Habakkuk was assured that to the faithful Jews of the land of Israel, God would be a refuge and a strength. But to the godless Babylonians, the invading nation, he would be the judge. Eventually, he would punish their sins and give them what they deserved. And here in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 19, God uh, pronounces a series of woes upon the Babylonian empire. And he reveals that Babylon, God's tool of judgment against Judah, would now itself be judged for its simple ways. Now, not only was Habakkuk to write the vision and to trust God's word, but he was to declare God's judgment. And so consider with me this morning this series of five woes upon five different sins of Babylon, sins that are prevalent in our world today, and the judgment on the sins of Babylon are the same judgments God has today for these sins in our society. So notice, first of all, woe against stealing in verses 6 through 8. Shall not all these take up a parable against thee, against him, and a tawny proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that laideth himself with thick clay, shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee? 
and wait that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties under them, because thou hast spoiled many nations. All the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of man's blood, for the violence of the land, of the city, and all that dwell therein. You know, the Babylonians' God was gain. They thought that uh, success came by obtaining more and more, by taking more and more land, by becoming wealthier and wealthier. Their ambition was to be rich and powerful. Now, of itself, ambition can be a good thing. But if it motivates people to be greedy, if it motivates people to be selfish, motivates people to be abusive, then it's a bad thing. Now, you and I should be ambitious. We should just want to drift through life and not want to achieve anything. You know, we shouldn't just go to school when we're in school and just think, oh, well, I've just got to suffer these 12 years of school and when it's over, it's over and I don't have to worry about it. We should be ambitious. We should seek to do our best at school. And when we get in the workforce, we should seek to do our best in our employment and seek for advancement in that employment. So ambition is not a bad thing. But when ambition turns to uh, greed and selfishness and abusiveness, that's a bad thing. And the Babylonians were consumed by selfish ambition. So much so that they stopped at nothing to acquire wealth. They stopped at nothing to expand their kingdom. They were ruthless. They were barbaric. And they were cruel to those that they were invading. They had hordes of stolen goods. And they plundered them from helpless people. Verse 6 says that. It says, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. The thick clay here has a reference to the fact that uh, they gather that which is of no eternal value. You know, they collected silver and gold, but eternally they may well have collected clay. That's the point here. They thought they were getting rich on all the riches of the land. They were getting more wealthy by the day. But God says, well, you may well have collected clay because it's no value to you in the end of the day. God warned them that the owners of the wealth, those that they stole off, would one day rise up and condemn them and collect what was due. Look in verses 7 and 8. Shall not rise up, shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee and and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties under them, because thou hast spoiled many nations. All the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and all that dwell therein. The Babylonians were going to become victims themselves. The very people they'd gone against, the very nations that they'd ransacked, the very people they'd been cruel to, God says one day the Boot's going to be on the other foot, and they're going to rise up, and they're going to spoil you. In fact, you're going to be a booty to them. You're going to be a trophy of victory to them. You're going to lose out. Of course, this happened when the Medes and the Persians invaded Babylon and overthrew Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. And the nation of Babylon ceased to exist. Babylon was plundered. The nation that had plundered other nations was now plundered herself by the Medes and the Persians. The Babylonians had shed blood of nation upon nation and now her blood was to be shed for her greed. 
Here's a basic law of the universe that eventually we reap what we sow. And Babylon was about to reap what they had sown. And beloved, you and I, it's true of us. God says in the New Testament that you and I will reap what we sow. If we reap under corruption, we will sow of corruption. If we reap under eternal life, we'll reap of eternal life. If you and I sow the right kind of crop, if you and I are living for God and serving him and our motivations to serve him and honor him, then you and I will reap the benefit of that service because we do reap what we sow. The second woe is against coveting. In verse 9, woe to him that coveteth and evil covetousness to to his house that he may set at his nest on high and he may be delivered from the power of evil that's consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and has sinned against thy soul for the stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it covetousness according to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28 there are three ways to get wealth you can get wealth by working for it You can get wealth by stealing it, or you can get wealth by receiving it as a gift. The Babylonians gained their wealth by stealing it. Because the Babylonians coveted wealth, they stole it from others. They didn't work for it. I guess they would class pillaging and fighting and going to war as a job, but... They got it by the wrong means. They didn't get it by being gainfully employed. They did it by ruthlessness ruthlessness, and by terrible uh, acts of atrocity against the nations that they invaded. And they stole from others. And God sees covetousness as a sin to be punished. What a man covets seems to be gained. But in the end, it brings evil to his house. That's what he says in the first part of verse 9. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house. There is a woe upon him who seeks covetousness, and that woe is upon his house. He seeks it to advance his house. He seeks it to make his house better. But at the end, he loses out. Their goal was security. It says that they were like eagles' nests on high, in verse nine. That they may, it says, uh, and he that may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. They wanted to secure their their boundaries, their borders. They wanted to be like an eagle set up on a mountain cliff high, so nobody could attack them, nobody could get to them. They were securing themselves by defeating everybody. They were the mightiest nation on the planet. The Babylonians. And of course, this was a false security. Because no individual or nation can build walls high enough to keep God out. And the consequence of their covetousness was instead of having houses and families that bring honor to them, they have disgrace and shame and eventually they lose their lives. Look in verse 10. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off my people and hast sinned against thy soul. They brought shame to their household. They brought disgrace 
to, upon their, their people. Their covetousness led to them becoming a nation that instead of being glorified is, is looked upon as a nation that was atrocious, was wicked and awful. And ultimately, that was going to lead to the end of their lives. And in the end, the very materials that they, in their expensive houses, was going to testify against them because they'd been plundered from the helpless. That's verse 11. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer thee. In other words, every time they looked at their houses and they saw the grandeur of the architecture and the grandeur of the building, you know, uh, they would be reminded of how they got that. It was by plundering, by pillaging, by cruelty, by uh, covetousness. The very testimony of the very buildings they lived in was going to cry out and testify against them and demonstrate just exactly the kind of people they were. People of covetousness. You know, the truth is the greedy man thinks of nothing but gain. But what, if, what is gain if he ends up losing his own soul? Mark 8.36 says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What was the benefit of the Babylonians having all that they had? And there's no doubt that Babylon was a rich nation. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the world were the hanging gardens of Babylon. Babylon was exquisite. Babylon was unique. Babylon was rich. It was, it was uh, running with gold. But what was the value of all that without God? They lost their own soul. You know, Jesus' parable of the, in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21, uh, of the rich man is a perfect example of a greedy man who sins against his own soul. Remember, you know, he saw out, he saw and he said, up, let's build bigger barns. So he tore down his barns, built bigger barns and, and put all his grain into the barns and he sat back and took his ease and, uh, and he said, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you may die. And God said to him, thou fool, this day shall thy soul be required of thee. He had wealth. He had comfort. He could sit back and kick back and think that he had everything, but that very day he was going to enter an eternity. And what good was his wealth then? You see, to have everything, to have all your heart's desires, to have everything that the world could offer you, to have riches and have security and have every gadget and every piece of things you could have, is what the world thinks is the means of happiness. The world thinks that gain is happiness. People covered all the time, better this, better that, better something else. But at the end of the day, what is the profit of that if you lose your own soul? To have everything and lose your own soul is the height of foolishness. And the Babylonians were foolish thinking that their wealth made them secure, thinking that their wealth made them happy, thinking that gain brings security. And today men may think that to obtain wealth and to have much is gain. You know, God says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. 
So at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is my relationship with Jesus Christ. When all said and done, when this life is over, when you and I die, or when uh, this, the, the Christ returns, the only thing that matters is my relationship with Jesus Christ. Do I know him? Have I come to the place in my life where I've realized that I'm a sinner before a holy God, and I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for salvation? If I have not settled the eternal state of my soul, then all that I have, all that I gain, all that I possess is pointless. For the only thing that has eternal value is my soul. So what matters is my eternal relationship with God. Godliness with contentment is great gain, not wealth, not security of finances, but my relationship with God. Thou shalt not covet maybe the last of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. But if we're guilty of covetousness, then we're in danger of breaking the other nine commandments. Covetousness is a terrible thing. It permeates society, and when you and I become covetous of other things and covetous of gain, then it does destroy our focus. And our focus ought to be on that which is eternal. We ought to set our affection on things above, not on things of earth. We're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto us. Covetousness is a terrible, terrible sin. Thirdly, there's woe against violence. Look in verse 12. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood established the city by iniquity. This was Babylon. Babylon was built by bloodshed. The blood of innocent victims was the means by which they'd built their city. They, they drank their neighbor's blood. They'd established their city with iniquity. It was built by prisoners of war and slave labor that was exploited to the fullest extent. Babylon was proud of what she had built. As I said earlier, she could be proud. I mean, in the ancient world, Babylon was a unique city. It had running water, hot and cold running water. Babylon's gardens were majestic. Babylon was a city that was way above its time. And, and, and materially speaking, Babylon had much to be proud of, much to boast about. In the ancient world, it stood out above the other nations of the world. It was unique. It was unique in its leadership. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was, was supreme leader, unquestioned, un, unopposed. Babylon was a unique nation. But God said it wouldn't last because it was built upon the blood of other nations. It was built upon the blood of innocent victims. And so Babylon would not last. In fact, God tells them they're only going to be fuel for the fire. Look in verse 13. Behold, it's not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. They're going to labor for vanity, labor for emptiness. 
And at the end of the day, they're simply going to be fuel for the fire. The glory of the Babylonians didn't last. But the Lord will be glorified, was glorified when Babylonian fell in 539 BC, verse 14. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When Babylon fell, God was glorified. This nation that seemed to be invincible, this nation that seemed to be a have-it-all, this nation that seemed to be more powerful than any other nation of the world, it stood head and shoulders above the rest. This great nation of Babylon fell in Daniel chapter 5, and when it fell, God was glorified. And he will be glorified in the end when Babylon of the last days is destroyed, when the final great world empire of the tribulation period is known as the great Babylon of Revelation chapter 17 and 18, when that nation, when that confederate of ten nations is destroyed and Antichrist is overthrown, God will be glorified. The fall of Babylon, the fall of Babylon the Great, is a reminder to us that what man builds without God can never last. If what we're building is not built for God's glory, then it will not last. It doesn't matter what we're doing. It doesn't matter how rich we become. It doesn't matter how prestigious we might get. It doesn't matter how much fame we might achieve. At the end of the day, if what we do is not for God's glory, it will simply burn away. In the contrast to the shame and infamy of Babylon, God promised that his glory would one day cover the earth. You know, it may have seemed to Habakkuk, it may have seemed to the people of Judah that God had lost control. Remember, Habakkuk asked the question, Lord, how in the world can you take wicked Babylon to judge your wicked people? I understand your people need to be judged, but surely the sin of the ones who are going to judge is greater than those being judged. Lord, I don't understand. I'm confused. How can you take Babylon and judge Judah? And it may have seemed to the nations around, it may have seemed to the, the nation of Israel that God had lost control, but where God says, I will one day be glorified. And he says in verse 14, that for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God allows for this, so that when God does intervene, everybody knows that God is God. See, the darker it gets, the brighter the light will shine when God is glorified. When Jesus Christ returns to earth and establishes kingdom, then God's glory will indeed cover the whole earth. And beloved, trusting God is far wiser than trusting our own strength, our own means, and our own ability. We can't go wrong if we trust God. One day the whole, this whole world will burn. And only that which is done for Christ 
will last. You and I ought to be investing in eternity daily by living for the Lord. Fourthly, there's a woe against drunkenness. Verse 15, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, and that putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. You know, the Bible often warns against the evils of strong drink. Go back with me, if you would, to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 20. I just want to look at three references. The stack's more, but three references. Proverbs 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not Wise, chapter 21 and verse 17. He that loveth pleasure shall be poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. And then if you go to Romans chapter 13, please. Just one in the New Testament. Romans chapter 13. And verse 13. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. As I said, I could have listed a whole lot more verses. But the Bible often warns against the evils of strong drink. And here in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 15, the Lord rebukes both the drunk and those that promote drunkenness. He says, Woe unto them that giveth his neighbor drink, and putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken, that they mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. Though they think that alcohol makes them feel good. And God rightly says there, uh, and they, they think that uh, it's the means by which you live and enjoy life. The Lord rebukes them for giving drink to others and for being drunk themselves so though they think that alcohol makes them feel good God rightly says that they are filled with shame instead of glory and the reason that is for drunkenness and sensual behavior often go together notice what he says at the end of verse 15 it says and makest thy drunken also Thou that mayest, uh, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. And drunkenness and sensual behavior often go together. Drunkenness and, and behavior that does not bring glory to God often go together. Drunkenness is a waste of resources. Resources that should be given for the use of the Lord. In fact, the damage of drunkenness goes beyond the act itself, for it affects lives, it affects families. The drunken, those who promote drunkenness, in this passage, love their own cup full of drink. The reason for that is because it makes them feel good. Woe unto them that giveth his neighbor drink, and putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that they mayest look on thy nakedness, that thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. Makes them feel good, but it really brings shame upon them. It's a cup of shame. They wanted their cup full, 
So God promises a cup for them, a cup of judgment, a a cup of recompense for their sin. The glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth, according to verse 14, but Babylon's glory will be covered with shame, according to verse 16. And the picture here is of a drunk vomiting all over himself. Now, isn't it a pretty picture? Instead of being covered in glory, they're covered in shame. And shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. You know, drunkenness was wrong then, and drunkenness is wrong now. And he goes on to talk about the consequence of it all in verse 17. He says, For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid, because of man's blood, and for the violence of the land of the city, and all that dwell therein, God is going to judge them. It's better that you and I are filled with the Spirit than you and I be drunk with wine. Isn't that what Ephesians 5.18 says? Be not drunk with wine, which is where is their success is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. Beloved, uh, God condemns their behavior, thinking that this brings happiness, thinking, thinking that this brings joy, thinking this really makes them, them enjoying life, but at the end of the day, all it does is bring shame upon them and uh, an awful shame upon them and upon their families, and God is going to judge them. Because they have their priorities wrong. They have their focus wrong. They have their, their vision wrong. Instead of looking to God and seeing what God wants for them and allowing God to fill them with joy and hope and allowing the God's glory to shine through them, they're seeking for happiness in the wrong place. And God's going to judge them. And beloved, you and I need to allow God to control Allow his spirit to control us. And you and I put him first. Allow him to be the source of our joy. Allow him to be the source of our peace. Allow him to be the source of our happiness. And not drunkenness, as the Babylonians did. And the fifth woe is a woe against false gods in verse 18. What profit the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and the teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood awake and to the dumb stone arise it shall teach. Behold it is laid over with gold and silver and there is no breadth at all in the midst of it. Woe to the false gods. Now, it's sad to say the people of Judah were just as guilty of this sin as the nation of Babylon. They worshipped the gods of other nations. That's the reason why Babylon's about to invade them. Because they turned their backs upon God and they were worshipping the gods of the nations around about them. And God's now about to judge them with the Babylonians because they turned their back upon God. And they were guilty of the same sin that God's now about to punish in the Babylonians. And all the prophets of Israel had cried out against this flagrant violation of the second commandment that they shall have no other gods before me. 
but the people refused to repent. The nation of Israel, the ten northern king tribes, had gone into captivity. 150 or 160 years prior to this, they'd gone into captivity because they refused to worship God. They worshipped idols, and God took them into captivity. Judah had had some good kings and bad kings, and for the sake of David, God allowed them to exist a little longer, but now God says, enough is enough, and their worship of idolatry caused them to now go into captivity. God's going to judge the worship of false gods. Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1 and verse 25 explains to us in the New Testament what an idol is. Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. Verse um, 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Idolatry is worshipping or serving the the creature more than the creator. Idols are simply anything that replaces God. Idols are a dead substitute for the living God. Verse 18 says, What profit in verse chapter 2? What profit the graven image that maketh that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and the teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusted therein to make dumb idols. What's the point of trusting that which you've made? That's foolishness. To worship a statue that you have made out of wood or to worship a statue you've made out of gold is ridiculous. You're worshipping that which you made. Don't we need a God who made us? We do. It's pointless to worship something that didn't make us. It's even more pointless to worship something that we made. What we need is a God who can make us, sustain us, look after us, who is more powerful than us. It is no point worshiping a God that we have to carry around and look after and protect. I don't know about you. I need my God to protect me. I don't need to protect him, my God. I need my God to carry me. I don't need to be carrying my God. It's foolishness. And that was idolatry. And that's why he says in verse 19, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, is laid over with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in the midst of it. How in the world can it teach you anything? It can't breathe. I just love God's, God's sense of humor at times, you know. He just says, it can't, how, how is he ever going to teach you anything? It's foolishness. And to worship idols is foolishness. Now, you and I in Western society don't put little idols on our mantelpieces and uh, for the most part, and we don't carry around little idols, and we don't worship wood and, and, and stone and that. You know, in Western culture, we're a bit more sophisticated than that. For the most part, we don't worship graven images. But Western culture is full of idolatry. Because whatever people delight in other than God, whatever they're devoted to and sacrificed for, whatever they couldn't bear to be without is an idol. That's what they worship. 
And those who worship idols are under the condemnation of God. Now, everyone is free to work, choose their own religion. We do believe in freedom of religion. And everybody has a right to choose their own religion. But if you choose wrongly, there's no blessing of God. You can't expect God to bless you for worshipping any way you feel like. It's also true that anyone can choose to worship where they want to worship. But if you choose the wrong kind of worship, then there's no blessing. There's no profit to it. There's nothing stopping us worshipping where we like. We don't have to go to church. But if we choose to worship God without going to church, which is God's ordained institution, then we'll not get the blessing from God. There'll be no profit in it because God ordained church. He says, we're not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, Hebrews 10.25. We're supposed to gather together as believers, as the church. The problem is today, idolatry has got in the way of many people seeing God for who he is. And idolatry is disobedience to God's word and it's foolish and it's useless to have idols. And people in our Western culture do sacrifice for all sorts of things. They can't do without certain things. Things are idols to them. Churches will not be full on a Sunday, but put on a football match and crowds will turn out for it. Put on a cricket match, crowds will turn out for it. Because that's their idol, that's what they worship. They'll spend hundreds of thousands and thousands of dollars on what they, uh, on their idol, but they will not come to church to worship the true and living God. And at the end of the day, all that does is bring condemnation. You know, it's more reasonable to worship the God who made us than it is to worship man who made the idol. And truly, beloved, as believers, we need to make sure that we put God first in all things. He needs to be our focus of our worship, the focus of our sacrifice, the focus of our service, the focus of our loyalty, he must be first in our lives, day in, day out. He needs to be the focus. And all other things, he says, well, he will add to us as we need them, but we need to make him our focus. Because now that we're saved, he is our God. And as our God, he ought to be our Lord. And we ought to bow our knee before him, not before foolish idols. Now, God ends his reply to Habakkuk by giving him an assurance in verse 20. For the Lord is in his holy temple, and all the earth keeps silence before him. In contrast to the lifeless idols, he just talked about in verses 18 and 19, the Lord is alive and well in his holy temple. What a great way to finish the chapter. And God had just pronounced all this judgment upon the nation of Israel, Judgment upon the nation of Babylon. And God says, but know this, I am in my holy temple. I'm on the throne. Therefore, we shouldn't question 
what he's doing. Like faithful servants, we must listen for his commands and we must keep silence before him. The word keep silence here it literally is hush before him all the earth. Stop talking and start listening. Just be hushed before God and listen. Listen carefully. God hates sin in all its forms. Listen to what he says and then do not engage in that sin. God is in control of all things. Therefore, listen for his leadership and follow his will. The challenge to us, as it was to Judah, is that we live by faith, that we live in the center of God's will, that we seek him for joy and peace and blessing, and that we put him first. Seeing the vision of God and hearing the voice of God made a tremendous difference in the life of Habakkuk. In the closing chapter of this book, chapter 3, he will share with us the vision that he had of God and the difference that vision made in his life. Habakkuk thought that God was disinterested in the problems of life. Remember, that's where he starts out. He asks the question, how long, O Lord, will you allow wickedness to, to go on? How long, Lord, before you judge? How long will you allow this to happen? He was questioning God. He started out by asking God questions because he felt that God was disinterested in the problems of life, but he discovered that God was very much concerned. And that's why the just should live or must live by faith. If we look at ourselves, we look at our circumstances, we will be discouraged and we might even quit. But if we look up to God by faith as Habakkuk did, and we look ahead to Christ's return as Habakkuk does, then you and I will be encouraged. So let's keep silence before him. Let's wait patiently upon him let's listen for his voice let's hear his word let's faithfully live in his will till jesus comes let's pray gracious father we thank you for your word this morning we thank you father god for the book of habakkuk we thank you for uh, the challenge about these five simple practices that you have condemned, Father God, in your word, and may we, as believers, avoid them, Father. Instead, may we simply turn unto you. May we keep silence before you. May we hear your word. May we live in accordance with your will until Jesus comes. Commend your word to our hearts this day. If there's anybody here today who doesn't know you as their Savior, may they realize that life without Christ is empty. And that Christ is the only hope in a lost and dying world. 
Blessed know as we close with him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymnal 257. 257 as we close this morning. <laughs>